This episode is brought to you by Fizzy Vantage. I am very happy to announce a new partnership with Fizzy Vantage, now the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Fizzy Vantage is the leading brand in climbing nutrition with more than 40 professional climbers now using Fizzy Vantage products daily to support their training and climbing performance. Visit fizzyvantage.com to learn more about their many innovative research-based nutrition products and supplements, including their revolutionary supercharged collagen, that's my personal favorite, the performance boosting Endurex, and their delicious protein supplements, Weapons Grade Whey, and the plant-based Powerplex. If you would like to feel the Fizzy Vantage, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off any full-priced nutrition product. That's NUGGET15 at checkout, and you can find a direct link to this coupon right there in your podcast app. This episode is also brought to you by Chalk Cartel. I've been using this chalk for close to a year now, and it is my favorite chalk that I have ever used. So if you need to refill your chalk bag, head over to chalkcartel.com and buy yourself a kilo of the stickiest white powder on the market. And if you want to save big, they even sell this stuff in a five-gallon bucket. Perfect for gym owners, root setters, Or if you are a broke college student, here's an idea. You can use some of those student loans to throw down for a five-gallon bucket of chalk, go buy some Ziploc bags from the grocery store, and voila, you'll be the most popular kid in your dorm, slinging bags of chalk to all your friends and making a profit so you can finally buy some climbing shoes that actually fit instead of the old high tops you got from your dad. Head over to chalkcartel.com, use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next purchase, and get ready to join the cartel. Chalk Cartel, great chalk, no bullshit. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Nugget Climbing Podcast after a couple-week break over the holidays. It's really good to be back. I missed you guys, and I'm really excited about today's episode. My guest today is none other than Ben Moon. If you don't know that name, I don't know what to say. You've been living under a rock, and I'm excited to enlighten you. Ben Moon is a famous climber from the UK. He was the first person to climb 514C with his route Hubble, a route that many people now consider to be 14D or 9A. So the first one in the world either way. Pretty amazing. He's also the inventor of the Moonboard. I've talked about that board a lot on the show. I'm sure you guys have all seen one if you haven't climbed on one. The Moonboard truly is a revolutionary training product in climbing. There's a lot of boards on the market now, but the Moonboard was the first one. So it was really fun to talk to Ben. We spent a chunk of the conversation talking about his early years in climbing, how he got bitten by climbing as a kid. We talked about his first road trip to Bukes in France with Jerry Moffat and some of the different chapters of his climbing along the way. I was really interested to hear how climbing and training changed and evolved throughout his life. Ben really lived through and was at the forefront of a lot of that change through the 80s and 90s and even 2000s. 
We also tackled a bunch of great questions from listeners in this episode from patrons who support the show. Thank you guys for those questions. A lot of you wanted to know how Ben Moon uses the moon board. So, of course, we talked about his training, how he uses the boards, if he has a favorite set, if he has plans for new sets, etc., etc. I think you guys will find the second half of this conversation really fun if you're fans of the moon board. We talked about his training beyond just the moon board, some of the other things he does, and what he does to prepare for sport climbing in particular. We also talked about his training and how it's changed over time, what he would do differently if he could go back and do it all again. We also talked about some of his most meaningful routes and his longest project, which he still hasn't done, a route called Northern Lights at a crag called Kilnsey in the UK. Ben thinks he's tried it more than a hundred days and it was really interesting to hear about that experience and where he's at with it now. It's still a goal for him. So that was pretty cool. Anyway, Ben is a total hero of mine. This was a super fun conversation and I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. Before we jump in, I wanna give a big shout out to several of my patrons. Brian Fast, Leo Franchi, Michael Roy, David Leahy, and Robert Freehill. Thank you guys all so much for going above and beyond to support the podcast. It really means a lot and makes a big difference. So thank you guys. All right, with that, let's jump in. Please enjoy this very fun conversation with legendary UK climber, Ben Moon. Ah, there we go. <laughs> oh, put a face to the voice. That's right. <laughs> Hi. Hi, yeah. How nice you doing, man? Not, not what I expected at all. Oh, really? I'd actually love to hear what you expected. That's really interesting to oh, me. I don't know. No, I don't know. Yeah, you just... Uh, Hey, younger. Younger. There. <laughs> I'll take that. All right. You look like a, a surf, surfer or something. <laughs> well, I'm actually trying to rock the uh, 1996 Ben Moon look. <laughs> yeah, I like it. <laughs> Thanks, man. How you doing? Yeah, not bad, thank you. Let me just decline these cookies. That's, oh, no, hang on a sec. Decline these. Got things popping up in front of me. Um, nice. Okay, yeah. Oh, let me close my email down as well. Sorry. No worries. No worries. I'm not very well prepared for this. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I'm prepared and you just get to tell me about your life. So that should be easy, hopefully. Where are you? Are you um, on the West Coast or something? I am. Yeah. I'm back in Washington State visiting mom and dad. We just had a hmm. Thanksgiving holiday with family and I'm hanging out a few more days to get uh, some work done on my van and to try to climb. We have like one last weather window before it's just rain. So it's not really the best time of year to be here, but um, it's home, you know, so it's, I get to climb a little bit in one of my favorite places and hang out with family. So where are you going? Heading to Bishop and then to Waco. Oh, right. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be nice in Bishop, I suppose, wouldn't it? Yeah. This time of year. I think so. Snow. It's a place I've spent a lot of time, but it's been a couple of years, so I'm excited to go back. Yeah. Yeah. It's really nice there, isn't it? Yeah. Hard on the skin, but it is nice. <laughs> exactly. 
Exactly. You know, yeah, you've traveled all over the States for bouldering. Uh, not that much. I mean, west, yeah, sort of west of Colorado, really. Okay. I've been to a few places. Yeah, it's great. It's, I think there's way more now, though, than there was when I was when I was there, by the sounds of it. Right. But yeah, it's a great place to have a van and go cruising, isn't it? It sure is. Yeah, it's it's not bad. Not bad at all. It's funny, you must have just been at the right places at the right times because a lot of my favorite climbing films featuring, you know, Western America, bouldering areas, you're always there. It's just like maybe the film's about Chris Sharma or Dave Graham or one of these other characters, but Ben Moon somehow is always there, you Pops know, <laughs> trying something hard in the background. Oh, God. I'll tell you, people that travel a lot more than I have, I feel like I've <laughs> often feel talking to people these days, I wasted off my life. Oh, really? Anyway. You feel like that? <laughs> a little bit. I feel like, God, yeah, maybe I should have done more, traveled more. Hmm. Were you spending all those days yeah. in the in the schoolroom? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> probably was climbing in the UK quite a lot. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Oh, yeah, I don't know. To be yeah. honest. I don't know why I feel like that. Uh, you know, maybe we all feel like that. It's probably part of social media and Instagram and being so connected. You know, it's yeah, possibly it's designed to make you feel like you're missing out all the you're time. You're missing out. Yeah, there's just <laughs> yeah. too much to do, not enough time. But yeah, yeah. So you're in the UK right now. Uh, yes, Sheffield. We're talking on December first. Do you have any sort of outdoor climbing happening in your part of the world? Well, it has been really dry actually for the past. Um, that past month or so so i think it's been has been really good i haven't been climbing outdoors i've been surfing a bit and oh, nice. uh, tra training indoors uh, but the weather's just crapped out now so uh -huh. um but yeah no it has been really good awesome but yeah there's been a lot going on actually i think yeah and uh at raven's tour which is our mm. sort of local you know well yeah local sort of like one of our local limestone crags will will boasty i don't know if you, he did um repeated mutation steve's route yeah um then he did the the new route to the writer hubble which is another old project so oh wow first ascent there so yeah he's been uh, yeah he's been cranking does that feel like a big deal over there like are a lot of people paying attention and watching that and waiting for the news i think yeah i think it is a big deal and if you sort of follow the news or you're into climbing then you probably do but yeah i mean it's a funny thing is yeah if you if you're not sort of uh, yeah, I mean, if you know, if I'm not climbing that much, I'm not into it. Then I'm, I kind of miss out on these kind mm. of things a bit. Mm. I mean, you know, the world just goes on. But yeah, when you're involved in it, it seems like it's so important, doesn't it? But right. um, yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely a big deal. Definitely a big deal getting mutation done as well because it's really hard route. Um, yeah, and for so, for people yeah. tuning in, that's one I talked with. Uh, I did talk with Steve McClure about that one in our podcast, but. Yeah, that went unrepeated for what, like 20 years or something? 20 years, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Steve probably realized how hard it was when he did it. <laughs> right. I mean, has he done anything harder? Yeah, you know, he might not have. Wow. That's quite a statement. I find given. it hard to believe it's 9A+, plus, to be honest. <laughs> mm. But yeah. anyway. <laughs> well, we just rolled right in, as I like to do. Um, any questions for me before we just... Go on no, with it. I'm already no, recording no, everything. Fine, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, fine. Do you have a time cut off today? Uh, no, no, no. Okay, awesome. Well, Ben Moon, it is so good to have you here. It's a real, uh, it's a real pleasure. I've, I've been very excited about this. So thank you for being here. Uh, it's, well, it's nice to be here. I've enjoyed listening to your uh, podcasts. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that means a lot. That's, that's really fun for me to hear. Um, 
I've followed your climbing and been aware of your career as long as I've been a climber. It's hard not to if you're interested in the history of climbing and sport climbing in particular. But I want to start by asking you uh, about something that I don't know about you, which is actually how you very first began climbing. So I would love if you could give us a glimpse into that space and time. Uh, how old were you? Where were you living? And which Ben Moon hairstyle were you rocking at the time when you first <laughs> started rock climbing? Um, yeah, I first started climbing in 1973 when I was age seven wow. uh, in a place called the Lake District, which is in the sort of north of England. Um, I lived in, uh, well, I lived in London, or we lived in London. Um, but we, yeah, we went on a couple of walking holidays with some other friends, some neighbours in London up in the Lake District. And the father, you know, of, of our friends was, um, well, he was originally from Yorkshire and he, he, he did a bit of climbing and he just took took me climbing, well, took us climbing one day, yeah, when I was about seven years old on some crappy little out, outcrop. And I was just sort of bitten straight away, really. And that's how I kind of got into it. Was it pretty uncommon for people to start that young at that time? I imagine it must have been. Um, I think climbing was, yeah, I mean, there just wasn't that many people climbing back then, I think. Um, you know, you didn't really know. It probably was quite unusual for someone to start climbing that young. I mean, it's really common these days, isn't it, because of the climbing walls and everything. But, yeah, maybe back then it was a little bit unusual, maybe at seven years particularly young. But, yeah, there just weren't that many climbers back then, and it was hard to go climbing and stuff. So, yeah, it was very different to how it is today. What was climbing then at that time? Were you top roping? Were you bouldering yet? We were just uh, just top, well, that was top roping just single pitch top roping in the lake districts on some small outcrop. And then um, I probably maybe didn't climb again for maybe three or four years, probably. And we went to some, well, there's sandstone outcrops in this, uh, in Kent in the South of England. And that's all sort of top roping or soloing. I mean, they're not more than about 25, 30 foot long. So that was top roping. And I went to boarding school in Sussex, which is also in the south of England. And um, me and my friend, well, there was a climber there. There's, one, there's a teacher there who did a bit of climbing. And um, me and my friend, who was also into climbing, we set up this climbing club. And we used to ha go to this um, this sandstone outcrop in the um, as PE in the summer term once a week. So, um, you know, that was when I was probably about 14 or 15. <laughs> and so that was, that was pretty much, yeah, all my climbing up until, yeah, up until I was about, well, 15 when I left school. When you say that you were bitten by it right away, do you remember what it was about climbing that captured your imagination or your interest? I think it was just the, it was just really exciting thing to do. I mean, I, I remember the route kind of sort of vaguely, you know, it just went up this, up this, I don't know whether it was a crack or a wall, just a slabby thing probably. And then it, you had to traverse out right a li little bit and there was a tree that was sticking out or something and I maybe st stood on the tree and it it fell or something but something <laughs> kind of happened that was like oh. so yeah it was really exciting um yeah I just wanted to do it again and you know it's like I said you know it was hard to go climbing back then and you know maybe you only climb once a year twice a year or something like that which you know in a way makes it more precious um mm -hmm. you know because you just spend all that time thinking about um, going climbing, but you know, you got you have to wait a long time. I remember one time I was skate. It was in this must have been in the seventies when the skateboarding craze hit um, hit Great Britain, and uh, I, we were, I was skateboarding in this park near my mum's 
uh, house and we were due to go climbing on this southern on this southern sandstone the next day top roping you know that's probably the one time that year and I, I fell off my skateboard and broke my wrist oh no and I had to go to hospital and had it in plaster and couldn't go climbing I'm absolutely <laughs> devastated <laughs> this is like as a teenager or something uh probably yeah maybe no it's probably less well yeah could be i don't know 11 12 13 years okay like that. okay and when do you remember when climbing first kind of became your own like was there a moment where you realized oh this is actually something i can do all the time if i if i'm creative and find these ways to do it i mean you guys were that's something i want to talk about is how things have evolved because you're very unique in that you are part of this probably the biggest wave of climbing in recent generations, just such a shift in standards from when you started to now. And you've been at the front of so much of that. And uh, you guys were so creative with, you know, traversing on brick walls and just just climbing any way that you could. And of course, then the boards, the cellar boards and things started to come into play later. But um, was there a moment where you realized, oh, this is something I can actually do all the time and want to do all the time? What do you mean professionally or just as in... Just climbing, just like, oh, I can do this more than one time a year. I didn't really sort of think like that. All I, all I was, you know, I was just completely obsessed with climbing. You know, I mean, at school, it's all, all I, you know, me and my friend thought about really. And we just read the climbing magazines, you know, that came out once a month. We read climbing books, mountaineering books. You know, we went sort of climbing on, you know, the school buildings and stuff just basically anything old railway bridge there was an old rail, sandstone railway bridge which we used to climb on i wasn't so all i wanted to do i just wanted to go climbing you know and it it, it totally sort of disrupted my education and I ended up, you know <laughs> doing really badly at my exams and uh, the school didn't want me back um so that's why i ended up sort of leaving school at 16 okay and briefly went to like a, a college to do retakes because my mum wanted me to do retakes and flopped out of that after a term and a half. Um, so I was just, all I wanted to do was go climbing. I wasn't thinking about making a living. I mean, yeah, my mum my mom was like, you know, well, if you're not going to college, you've got to get a job. So, you know, I got a job for three weeks shelf stacking in this factory. And then I was just like, I don't, I don't want to do this. I've got to go climbing. <laughs> my mum was like, well, you're not staying at home. So she kicked me out. And uh, yeah, so, you know, we just, I just was doing whatever I could to go climbing, really. <laughs> I mean, it was lucky back then, actually, because we did have, I mean, I briefly lived with a friend in London after my mum, after I left home. And then I moved to Sheffield when I was yeah, 16, I think, or 17. But uh, yeah, you know, we there was a, a lot of unemployment in, in Britain at that time. And, you know, it was quite easy to get sort of unemployment benefit, you know, which was, you know, from the government. Right, the dole, um, right. You know, and didn't need money to live on the dole, exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, that that allowed me me and a few others to go climbing full time. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, legendary stories about that. Oh, that's actually a great lead in. Uh, could you tell me about Hunter House Road? Does that, does Road, that, yeah, well, that was the, does that mean anything to you? Ring any bells? <laughs> yeah, it got condemned in the end. Um, Hunter House Road, yeah, that was the first house that I lived in in Sheffield when I came to Sheffield um, in 1983. And um, yeah, it was a student house. I'd been invited there by a, a guy who wasn't a student. He was like a sort of mature, old, older guy, actually. He said, oh, if I was ever into Sheffield, come and have a, you know, look him up and stuff. And so I did. And, uh, yeah, I just ended up staying there for about six months. And there was, yeah, I think it was it was a big house, which probably had six bedrooms or something. And there was six paying 
people plus probably their partners and then like climbers dotters like me and other other people and yeah people just sort of passing through all the time and uh yeah it got a pretty <laughs> it got pretty messy and uh yeah it was just terrible house and, <laughs> how many people do you think rubbish, were living there? rubbish everywhere i mean sometimes there could have been 20 wow you know, for a few nights there was probably always like 10 or so you know in a house for sort of six or whatever and it probably wasn't in a great condition, the house, when <clears throat> when it was first rented out to, to my friends or who became my friends anyway. But, yeah, we didn't, having so many people in it didn't, uh, yeah, didn't didn't help. And uh, I think, yeah, in the end, it did get condemned by the local council because it got in such bad condition. Oh, my like gosh. Like back doors hanging off and stuff. Yeah, it was pretty, <laughs> pretty grim. <laughs> yeah, when you I talk- don't think people live, I don't, I'm not sure that people live like that anymore, in, not in the UK anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all the students here have amazing accommodation, like yeah. brand new, brand new, like purpose-built accommodation for them. Right. When you talk about rubbish on the floor, I mean, it's, you know, it sounds dramatic. And what comes to mind is like frat houses and college houses where, you know, there's remnants of partying all over the place. But there was a film actually recently that came out documenting this. I think the film was called Statement of Youth, which of course is uh, refers to a route that you did, which I want to talk about later. But Anyway, it just captures a lot of the history of that time. And there's amazing photos and footage of that house. And it's truly mind-blowing. Like people passed out on the floor, laying on yeah. garbage. There's like bottles all around them. And just, like no one, I think... Things painted. I mean, I think the telly got painted. Loads of things <laughs> just got painted. <laughs> what, what do you mean painted? Like graffiti or something? Painted, or? just like painted like with paint you know, the paintbrush just paint it you know just i don't know why stupid thing to do but uh yeah i think someone told a story in that video i'll link to it in the show notes but someone told a story that um just as an experiment like a social experiment someone put bottles of pee or urine on the kitchen or like the living room table or something just to see what would happen to see who would clean them up and just no one cleaned them up. They just no stayed. <laughs> they just stayed yeah. there. Every now and then, we every now and then we'd have a big clean up, and it, it did look like amazing. Uh, but yeah, it just quickly just deteriorated again. <laughs> okay, so you're 17. You moved to Sheffield. You're living on the dole. Almost a dream come true in a way. Like things are kind of conspiring to give you the the chance to climb as much as possible. Um, First, what was your hairstyle at the time? We haven't talked about that. I'd love to hear about your general kind of, you know, skater attitude or vibe. Uh, but what was the climbing looking like at that time as well? And I'd, I'd love to hear, yeah, just a glimpse of what you guys were doing and uh, what the standards were at that time. Um, yeah, well, I, mean, I was really lucky because I, you know, ended up sort of climbing with all the sort of, most of the sort of best climbers in the UK, or a lot of the best climbers in the UK at the time, lived in Sheffield, people like Jerry Moffat and Chris Gore. Andy Pollitt. Um, I think uh, it was mainly, well, it was trad, trad climbing pretty much in 1983. Uh, sport climbing probably started happening the following year on 1985. Um, hardest route was probably around about 8A, I imagine, in 84. I mean, I did Statement of Youth in 84. In 83, I think, yeah, Jerry did a route called Masterclass at Pentrum, which was a sport route actually. That's 8A. I think that's 8A now. So it's around about 8A. I think there was a route in Scotland by Dave Cuppertson, which I think is a trad route, actually, um, which was 8A at the time, maybe even 8A plus. Mm. So something like that. Yeah, we were people were bouldering. 
um, mainly on crags. I mean, mainly at Stony Middleton. It's basically this old this crag called Stony Middleton, which was a traditional crag, which had a lot of had a lot of hard traditional roots, limestone roots that had been done in the seventies. It was like a sort of forcing ground, hmm. um, and yeah, we were still climbing there quite a lot and bouldering there a little bit on the grip, but bouldering was very much very much sort of training for roots at that point um it wasn't really an end in itself or no one i knew did it you know just for just for just for the fun of it yeah and climbing was there wasn't any climbing walls but we yeah we climbed on this just another brick sandstone brick wall in in the city center or on a university building um that was just like 30 foot long 10 foot high on these tiny little brick edges, vertical, <laughs> super technical. People still go there. It's really good, but it's very kind of old school. Yeah. Like tiny little crimps, <laughs> um, really sort of technical. I mean, it's good for your finger strength and everything. But uh, yeah, me and Jerry spent like a, a winter training there. He, he, Jerry had this, he'd heard about, um, well, he wanted to go to France. He'd heard about Bukes and Verdun, Sassoir. I wanted to go and do the hardest routes in France. And so we spent the whole winter traversing on this tiny, these tiny little crimps. And then we got to Bukes and it was all overhanging pockets. <laughs> and we, Jerry was like, you know, he was like, oh, if I'd known it was like this, I wouldn't, you know, I'd have been doing baccaladders and, you know, stuff training differently. <laughs> Were you guys but making up? I don't know if you've up? been to Bukes, actually. There is some, there is, there are some sort of super thin technicals, technical routes at Bukes as well. Um, so it's, yeah, it's very varied. What year was that? The winter of training. Yeah, uh, 84. 84, okay. 84, 83, 84. What were you guys doing? Were you making up problems or just traversing? A uh, bit of both. Okay. Um, the traverse was about 30 foot long. That's probably, it, I think it, they reckon it's 7B plus, French 7B plus root grade now. Uh, I don't know what that is, 7, uh, 512, yeah, three, like something like 12C. that. 12C. Yeah. 12C. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we used to make up tiny little, short little boulder problems, which are absolutely desperate. I mean, people still, I've been there a bit recently and it's it's really hard like if you can flash the traverse you know you're doing pretty good because you know it's just so technical you get one thing wrong you're suddenly suddenly out of there and then 84 what was uh what was the equipment looking like at that point did you have what we would recognize as conventional climbing shoes or yeah what oh you- uh climbing equipment uh we fearays had just arrived okay the, the sort of original fearays had just arrived Jerry and uh, Chris Gord got a pair of Fieres, uh from John Backer. Um, so they had just arrived. So we're all wearing those. And yeah, I mean, they were a revolution. I mean, I was pretty inexperienced, to be honest. I mean, they were probably my second or third pair of boots. And the mm. boots I had before then, yeah, I didn't know anything about boots. And they were, they were you know, they certainly weren't the best boots on the market at the time. But yeah, everyone said the new Fieres were just like, compared to the, you know, I think PAs, uh, EBs, EBs was... He, that's what they took over from these EBs. None of this is going to mean anyone to a lot of people because <laughs> <laughs> everyone's too young. <laughs> Hopefully, Ron Cal could be listening to it. He'll be able to listen. I'll be sure to send this one to him. But yeah, they were super sticky, those Fieres. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people say that those Fieres are even more sticky than the boots today because they had they were allowed to, they were allowed to put something in the rubber oh. compound that they're not allowed to put in now or something. I don't know if that's true, but you oh, know, fascinating. I have heard that. But yeah, they were super sticky. Huh. So that was a ba- massive advantage. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I've never heard that from anybody before. Yeah. 
Yeah. I just assumed that the rubber had gotten better and better, but yeah, sneaky well, ingredients. I mean, yeah, the, the design of the boots these days is amazing, like mm-hmm. the shape and everything. One thing I'm interested in exploring with you is these different chapters of your climbing, like and, and training, what you guys were doing and when. And um, you know, I don't know if you think about it this way, but I'm wondering if you can kind of categorize your climbing history into these different chapters and paradigm shifts, like moments where your perception of what climbing was or what climbing could be, like when those things shifted. And um, to kind of kick that off, I had actually reached out to our mutual friend, Steve Mesh, uh, before this conversation. Oh, right. And, yeah, yeah. and uh, he, I asked him if he had any questions for you. And the one thing he really wanted to hear about was your time at Bukes. And I would just love to hear kind of a little bit more about what was going on in the UK with climbing at that time. And then what happened in your brain? Like, what was it a paradigm shift to go to Bukes and what was that experience like? Well, I mean, Bukes was, yeah, incredible. I mean, for two reasons, really. I mean, it was my first ever road trip. You know, I was 17 years old. I'd never been out, you know, on a climbing road trip outside the UK, just climbed a little bit in the UK. And I just met, you know, one of my climbing heroes in Sheffield, Joe Moffat. Um, you know, who was, you know, arguably one of the best in the world already, really, in 1984. Um, Can we we pause and and talk about that a little bit more? Because I, you know, everyone now thinks of you guys as contemporaries and, you know, Ben and Jerry, Ben and Jerry, you guys are, um, you know, you did so much together. But he's, Jerry's was three years older than me. So, you know, when I met him, when I was 17, you know, he was, I think he was 19, well, I think I might have met him when I was 16, but yeah, he was like 19, 20 when I met him. Okay. Um, already, already climbing really hard, you know, had traveled a lot, you know, he'd been over to Germany, done the hardest routes. He'd been over to America, done the hardest routes. He was good friends with Wolfgang Gulick, um, John Backer, um, Ron Kaup, you know, you know, the best climb, best climbers in the world at the time, really. Yeah. Um, so whereas I was just fresh out of school, only just moved to Sheffield, you know, was climbing 510. <laughs> you know, the year before or something. Wow. So, yeah, it was, you know, it was amazing to be with, you know, to have fallen in with Jerry then and first road trip, go to Bukes, which, you know, probably, well, it was the place to be in France, really. I should say Sassoir, Bukes, Verdon back then, you know, which is, you know, amazing crag. And, uh, yeah, when we went to Bukes, we, you know, we, we ended up meeting, you know, a lot of the best French climbers, you know, at that time, Jean-Baptiste Tribu, um, Le Menstrel brothers, Marc and Antoine, um, Patrick Edlanger, he was there. I mean, they were, they were all there, basically, because everyone was new routing and developing. I think Bukes, I think Bukes had been climbed on for quite a long time, probably from the 70s and stuff, and there was aid routes and everything. But, um, yeah, there was a lot of development going on by the French at that time. I can't remember when we decided to go to Bukes. I almost feel like we only found out about Bukes when we were at Sassoir, you know, because Jerry, we went to, the whole road trip was sort of Jerry's agenda. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, he was like, you know, at these these uh, routes he wanted to go and do and stuff. But at Sassoir, there was, you know, a couple of hard routes, Chimpanzee Drone um, and, um, I've forgotten the route, the really hard one that Jerry did. Uh, oh my God, 8A plus that Mark the Minister had just done. My mind's gone a blank. Okay. To the right Chimpanzee Drone. Um, I'll look them up. That, so I mean, like that was 13C? Yeah, is that's 13C, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, that had to be one of the hardest routes in the world. I mean, it was, I mean, it was, there was, 
some hard stuff in America, wasn't there? Like Sphinx Crack and Grand Illusion. Well, that's probably not that hard. I don't know what was. I don't know what the hardest route in America at that time was. But yeah, anyway, it was it was hard route. And I think maybe we'd got some French people had seen Jerry climbing at Saswa and they were really impressed, you know, because he had onsighted. Well, he'd flashed chimpanzee drone because he saw me how to, saw me do you know how to do it. Um, but they and they were like, oh, you must go to Bukes. And, you know, there's like, and I probably gave him a list of routes that he needs to go and do. And so, yeah, so we ended up going down to Bukes. Um, hitching, you know, we were hitching around back then because we didn't have a car. <laughs> By the way, we got the train, I think, to Paris and they were hitching. But that was, it was just desperate hitching in France. We just never got lifts. <laughs> it just spent hours waiting by the side of the road. Um, but yeah, no, it was incredible being at Bukes. I mean, we really lucked out at Bukes as well because we were basically just sort of sleeping rough in the town of At, which is about five, six miles away from Bukes and trying to get lifts to the crowd to go climbing. And um, yeah, one day we got picked up by this woman who was working who was working at the Auberge de Seguens, which is this really nice auberge sort of um, inn in mm. the valley right below the cliffs. And she said, oh, well, there's this tiny little house behind the auberge you know you can stay there for free and um so we end up staying in this tiny little house that's kind of built into the side of the cliff for like four or five weeks and uh, she would bring us you would order like a a baguette you know every day and she'd bring it you know from the town and uh yeah we just yeah we lived off cold sandwiches and um we didn't even have a stove i mean yeah we were just basically living (laughs) off sandwiches and water out the stream (laughs) And climbing every day. I mean, it's just crazy. And then Jerry got ill. And then Jerry got really badly, really ill one day. I think that was from drinking water out of the stream. Oh. So okay, so Jerry's you know pushing world standards at the time, climbing you know five thirteen C eight A plus. What was your level at that time? Uh, My level. Well, before I left the UK, it was E five, which is probably seven A plus. French 7A plus. Okay. It's like 12A something. for people listening. Um, but by the time we left Saswa, I'd done a 7C plus. Well, I think it oh, was wow. given 7C 13A. at the time, but it might be 7C plus now. So, you know, over the winter and, you know, the few weeks that we'd been at Saswa, you know, I'd improved really quickly. Um, but Jerry was, yeah, he was a lot, lot, he was much, much better than me at that point. Um, yeah, I remember there was this route at so Bukes. I spent, well, Jerry did it, I think probably in a day, it was an 8A, where it was given 70 plus, but it's now given 8A, called Le Fisher Surge. I think Jerry did it in a day. Um, and I spent like five days trying to do it and kept falling off this last move. And Jerry was just like running laps on it as training. <laughs> but yeah. Was, was yeah, part he, of he, that. He had, a really good, he had a really good trip. You know, he did, did a few 8As early repeats of new eight A's that had been done at Bukes and did some hard on sites and stuff. The French were really impressed with, with his climbing, mm. you know, was that, um... and, and the fact that he always, he always, sorry, that he always, you know, he always tried to on site something, no matter how hard it was really, he'd always, oh, cool. you know, try and, you know, on site it. And you know, he did a lot of hard on sites. Um, I think the French were quite surprised at that because I think they obviously they were doing the red pointing technique and I think they just tended to sort of work things bolt to bolt it and then red point it. 
I was going to ask about that. It seems like all of that, you know, sport climbing, these completely bolted cliffs with no, you know, no pro, you're not placing any gear, full on red pointing tactics, dogging routes, rehearsing sections. Was that the first time you had seen that? Yeah, it was the first time I'd seen it. I don't know about Jerry. I don't know whether Jerry had seen it. I, you'd have thought he would have because, you know, he'd climbed in Germany and was mm. friends with Wolfgang and Kurt and they pretty much invented red pointing. So I'd have thought he'd known about it. But we were, we were, we were, you know, um, doing it ground up and dogging. Yeah, yo-yo style, American style, really. Mm. So basically, yeah, Jerry, we basically yo-yoed all the routes. We did that trip. So, yeah, it was bit, you... probably a bit weird, really. So it seems weird now, but it didn't seem weird at the time because that's how we climbed. And then you come back to the UK and uh, you did Statement of Youth after that trip, right? Would, would that climb have happened without that trip? I don't think so, no. No, no, no way. And was it controversial I mean, at the time? I, it it seems... was a bit controversial because okay. I put a few bolts in it, yeah. yeah. But there were, I mean, there were quite a lot of bolts already at Pentruin and a lot of the climbs, I suppose you would call them sport climbs, but, you know, there may be old pegs and old bolts or whatever. But, yeah, it was a little bit controversial putting these bolts in and I put five in. But, yeah, I don't know. But, yeah, I don't think it would have happened other, otherwise, you know, because, you know, haven't seen what they were doing in France and everything. And it's a great name. Did it feel like a statement at the time or were you just, was it just another route to climb and putting bolts was the way that made sense to do it for you? I think it was a bit of a statement. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I didn't think of it as being a statement, but I mean, you know, it was one of the hardest routes in the, in, in the UK and it had, you know, five bolts and stuff. So yeah, it, I think it was a bit of a statement. I don't, yeah, it was, it was Mark Pretty, my friend Zippy, he came up with the name, which is a play on um, Testament of Youth, which is a, a book. Um, so, yeah. But Jerry made short work of it. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like there was always uh, a competitive nature that would go back and forth with you guys. Yeah, I don't remember being competitive with him at that point. But, yeah, later on, we yeah, we had a, a friendly rivalry. Mm -hmm. Although sometimes, yeah, we did have our the odd falling out as well. Right. But, uh, yeah. I think it's inevitable with, uh, I mean, this is a maybe an odd comparison, but it's, it seems like an obvious one. Like the Beatles are such a great example. Like without all these, you know, great minds coming together to create this massive thing, it wouldn't have been the Beatles. But then having so much much talent in one group, there's all this tension and rivalry and falling outs and whatnot. It seems like you and, and Jerry had kind of a similar, you know, two top guys, um, different ages coming from slightly different backgrounds and doing a lot of the same stuff. But yeah, there's, I think there's inevitable tension that comes with that kind of dynamic. But if you get, com if you get competitive people, then I think you're going to get, you're going to have that. I'm sure, you know, Paul McCartney and John Lennon were probably quite competitive people maybe. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, I don't know. But yeah, if you, got competitive natures and yeah you're about the same level well maybe even if not the same level you can be get competitive with someone i don't know and i keep asking too many questions so we haven't answered this one yet so i'll just ask this one question I'm what did you look like at the time oh yeah <laughs> um i had a grown-out mohican haircut which, okay. which was starting to sort of go into dreadlocks because wasn't really washing it and <laughs> probably wasn't washing very much full stop um <laughs> So yeah, I was when I was in London, I was sort of into punk music. Um, 
me on one of the bands I was into, the lead singer had these sort of long dreadlocks and stuff, which I thought quite was quite cool. Yeah, and I had this Mohican, which just grew out and yeah, went into dreadlocks. What is a Mohican? Is that just like a long ponytail? Mohican, that's where it's shaved on the side. Ah, right. You know, like a, like the Mohawks. Uh-huh. Mohawk Indians, the Native <laughs> Americans rather. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, were you still skateboarding? Was that still an influence? No, no. The skateboarding was very short-lived. Okay, yeah, you broke your wrist. <laughs> Probably after like, I had that accident. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> like enough of that. priorities right. <laughs> It's interesting. I want to continue this kind of progression of your climbing history in these different chapters. And it's uh, it's really interesting to me to see all this footage of you because, you know, what we know you for, I mean, there's the moonboard, of course, and I want to talk about that later. But we, you know, you stand out as the first person to climb 8C plus with your root Hubble. You know, you did the first ascent of Hubble in 1990, 514C. Some people think it's even... 14D, the first 9A in the world. And your name is, you know, strongly attached to roots like that and statement of youth and these these routes. But then all the footage I see is you bouldering. And it seems like, I'm just curious what the ratio was. Like when you were at the height of your power, so to speak, what was the ratio of time spent bouldering and trying to push bouldering versus what we now think of as sport climbing? Um, were you still climbing trad routes at all? No, very little trad. But a lot of bouldering, um, yeah, a lot of bouldering. Well, certainly around when I did Hubble, um, you know, we had weird boards, then weird cellars. So, you know, in the winter we could climb, you know, on a on a board back then. And then outdoors, yeah, we were doing quite a lot of bouldering on limestone and the gritstone around that time. So, yeah, I would say it was a high percentage of bouldering when I was doing, yeah, when I did Hubble. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And even for the next few years when I was still doing roots and trying to do um, the Kilnsey project. So, yeah, a lot of bouldering. At what point did bouldering start to feel like its own sport? Or did, yeah, at what point did you start to have goals within bouldering for their own sake? Well, when I gave up sport climbing, really. Oh, which okay. Was in, yeah, in 1996, um, something like that. I pretty much, yeah, well, I did give up sport climbing pretty much. Um, after spending like sort of three, I just got demotivated with sport climbing really probably cause I wasn't traveling enough. Um, mm. maybe just sort of trying the same route or more or less the same route. Um, felt, yeah. So yeah, I packed in, I packed in sport climbing and just went bouldering really. So yeah, mid nineties. I did that for about 10 years. I want to ask you this. So, from Statement of Youth in 1984, your first ascent of this this route, it was 8A, so 13B for us Americans. And then you did the first ascent of Hubble, which was the hardest route in the world at the time in 1990, 14C or 8C plus, or even 9A. That is such a massive progression in six years. I mean, for you personally, but for the sport yeah. of climbing yeah, as well. Cool. What was What was happening during those six years? Um, I think it was more people. Yeah, good question. Uh, facilities, um, sport climbing. I think sport sport climbing took off, you know, worldwide, you know, and um, I think people people were just starting to sort of take take training. Maybe were the people starting to take training more seriously? I mean, I think they were, or had they done so before? I'm not sure. 
I mean, I think, you know, Jerry's, I mean, Jerry's been a big influence on my climbing and, you know, he was, I think back, John Backer was a big influence on Jerry. Mm. I mean, you know, Backer was really into training and was sort of quite systematic about things and everything. So I think it was, um, yeah, I think it was, it was a combination of people being a bit more serious and doing specific training for climbing and yeah, adopting the red point technique you know, just the working routes, working and working and working and then red pointing them. And how was, uh, <clears throat> how was the training scene in Sheffield evolving throughout that time? So at first we had traversing on little brick edges and making up little eliminates. I've seen all this footage of, you know, then it was like the, the really steep wooden board in the cellar, you know, just campusing these like roof Yeah, that was 1989. Edges. Okay, 89. <laughs> and then at what point did the schoolroom and the boards and the campus board and all that sort of stuff can come into play? Because, you know, people listening to this, I mean, myself included, I've watched the real thing. And that's just like the most legendary climbing training footage ever. Okay. It's you and Jerry just, you know, trading tries on the campus board when that was not new. You know, Wolfgang had obviously... Um, made that really popular. I guess it, yeah, but... I mean, Wolfgang obviously invented the campus board. I think that was in 1988. Okay, okay. I remember Jerry training, because Jerry lived in Germany for a little bit. I remember Jerry training one winter with Wolfgang, actually, I think, at uh, at the campus gym where the where the original campus board was and then coming to Buttes in his Peugeot 205 GTI. And, um, yeah, I think he'd also been on some like some kind of diet because he was really skinny as well, <laughs> but he was really strong and like uh, yeah, doing some of the hardest routes there. Um, I'll just ask this then: When did the schoolroom come to be? And can you describe the schoolroom? Schoolroom, schoolroom opened in 1993. Okay, schoolroom was well, it was an old sort of Victorian school, and we had we had rented one room in this old Victorian school. I suppose it must have been about. 40 feet by yeah, 40 by 40 or something like that with quite high ceilings. And um, yeah, we basically built some simple boards in the schoolroom, which were just like bigger versions of the boards we'd had in our cellars in our houses. And I, I had actually, I had a campus board in my back garden, which I think I built in 1990 after coming back from a trip to Germany. And I got all the measurements off Wolfgang's one and built one in the back garden. We moved that, my campus board, into the school, you know, to go with the boards. And that's, yeah, we stopped training on the cellars and basically just started training there. And then, yeah, that's, you know, that had a big impact, really. It was a really good scene there. How different was that training scene from what people do nowadays? What kind of stuff were you doing? And, Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a good question, that. Um, <laughs> it's not that different to what I do yeah. um, nowadays. I mean, I still do more or less the same, you know, when I train. Um, I probably don't do as much campus boarding now as I used to do. Um, but, yeah, all of the training I, I do these days is kind of bouldering, and the majority of it's probably on a, on, on a board. Um but, oh, yeah, but how does it differ to what people are doing today? But younger people, I mean, you know, there's a lot of really strong climbers that train at the schoolroom where I've got, I've got a new schoolroom now, which has got the old boards. It's where I used to run my business from. It's a bigger warehouse. 
so a lot of the sort of the people like Will Bosey and people train there. And so I get to see what they're doing and stuff. And yeah, is it's yeah, they definitely yeah, they're doing more different types of training. Um, mm. I would say. Um yeah. There's a lot of core a lot of core stuff, you mm. know, and conditioning. I, I see people doing a lot of that. Dead hanging is still very popular. I mean, I didn't do any dead hanging once we got the school and built in 1993, and I still don't really do that much oh, dead really? hanging. Well, very little dead hanging, in fact. Um, but yeah, dead hanging is really popular these days, isn't it? Yeah. Do you have thoughts on that? I mean, when you think about spending your time hanging from a hangboard, I, I assume that you did more of that before you had any other option because it was just so simple. We, that's all we used to do in the very early 80s is dead hanging, you know, yeah. um, because that's the only training sort of facilities there were really. But once once we built start building boards and stuff, I didn't do any dead hanging. Oh, one, I mean, it's, I don't know. I mean, if you've got good boards and you've got a campus board, do you need to dead hang? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I know it's it's really big these days and, you know, a lot of people do it and everything. Um, I mean, there's lots of different things you can do training-wise generally, aren't there? Um, lots of different exercises. You know, it's, at the end of the day, it comes down to how much time you've got, really. Mm. Um, and then prioritizing which, you know, which exercises you think are going to be most beneficial. You know, in an ideal world, if you had tons of time, unlimited time you'd do you know a huge different number of exercises wouldn't you presumably but you know most people's lives aren't like that mm. um and yeah i think if you've got limited time you know training on a board bouldering or you know is that'd be my sort of number one choice because it's good for strength um and it's you're climbing as well. And, you know, at the end of the day, climbing is like a, you know, very technical sport and uh, you get by well with a look, good technique. So, yeah, I'd say board training, whereas fingers is incredibly sort of specific, isn't it? But, yeah, I don't mm. know yeah. what, your, what your thoughts are there. Do you do a lot of dead hanging? Yeah, I mean, th this is why I always ask this. I think um, I... I do it mostly as a supplement when I'm climbing outside a lot. So if I'm spending my climbing time climbing on rock when I'm traveling in the van, I do think some supplemental dead hanging is helpful. If I were to train on the moon board or on a spray wall as much as you do, it I don't think it would be helpful. I think it would be, you know, I'd probably be getting plenty of finger stimulus from doing that climbing and it would probably be risking overdoing it by trying to add dead hanging to it. That's, those are my thoughts on it. Yeah, 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 that's what I would say. I mean, like I said, I did used to do a lot of uh, campus boarding, actually, in the early 90s, campus boarding and board climbing. And so, in a way, that is a bit, I suppose, like dead hanging and mm. um, and board board climbing. Um, you know, and you can, I, 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 yeah, I felt like you, you, you can do like a sort of 15-minute campus board session and, mm. you know, have a board session as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I want to take a little sidestep here and then come back to more of your training because I got a lot of questions for you from listeners, from patrons of the show, and everyone wants to know how Ben Moon uses the moon board. Uh, <laughs> so I'd, I'd love to come back to that in a second. But first, I just want to ask how the moon board first came to be and uh, to paint a little bit more of a picture for people listening of the schoolroom. 
the boards in there, from what I've seen from footage, you know, they were basically homemade spray walls, but the hold selection, a lot of like handmade wooden holds, a lot of little edges, a lot of little pockety things like that. So it was, it was a spray wall, not what we think of as the, you know, the modern standard moonboard set, but um, very similar style. So you were kind of already doing a lot of that. But yeah, when did the actual moonboard first come into being and how did that come into being? I think it was 2005 when I built a moonboard at the original schoolroom. Uh, <clears throat> I did my first set of holds, which is basically the original holds, the orange ones that are still going strong now. It was like 40, 40 holds uh, and 10 um, foot holds. Um, yeah, a friend of mine, a friend of mine just said, you know, what about having like a standardized, suggested like this standardized wall idea? And I just thought, oh, that's a great idea. And so, you know, that's where the moonboard came from. But yeah, it was really basic back then because there was like 40 odds on it. I mean, you could do like 10 problems or something, or maybe even less than that because, you know, there just wasn't that many options. And I don't know if you knew, well, you probably know the originals, but yeah, a lot of them are really small mm. and crimp and hard to use anyway, you know, and there wasn't, an, there wasn't, obviously wasn't an app. Um, mm. There was a website and you just sort of punched in, I can't even remember how you did it now, you just punched in the coordinates and uploaded the problem to the website. And then if you wanted to do that, someone's problem or a problem, you know, you printed off a PDF piece of paper that had the holds on and then you stood there looking at the moon board and go, Oh yeah, it goes there. Um, so yeah, it was really basic. Would you label like the rows and, and columns of the board? Like, did you have a, I think they, was, I think they were labeled. Yeah. I think yeah. They were labeled. They're labeled. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember this. I mean, I've been lucky enough to, uh, to do all my moonboarding with the led lights. When did that right, come in to the picture? That came in 2016. Yeah. I mean, okay. That, so that's much like later. a game changer, wasn't it? Yeah. Actually, I got an email from uh, Chad Jensen after okay, my yes, yeah, my Chad conversation with uh, with Boone Speed. We talked about the Grasshopper Board, and then Chad reached out and he's like, just filled in some really cool history. He was the um, the developer of the LED light system for the Moon Board. Yeah, so. Chad invented the LED system. It was really funny actually. He contacted because he had a Moon Board. Yeah, and he was obviously a keen Moon Board, and he he contacted me out of the blue, didn't know, and just so I got this, you know, saying, "Oh, I've got this LED system." you know, for the moon board. And I was like, you really, yeah, what's uh, just, I just couldn't sort of get my head around it. I was like, huh. yeah, is that, is that a good thing? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I'd like to think I'm sort of quite an open sort of open guy. And uh, yeah, he sent me some over and I probably didn't even sort of install them straight away. Cause I was, wasn't convinced on the idea. I couldn't really understand what it was. And then I installed it. And obviously it was a very basic led system at that time you know, you had to punch in some numbers on a keypad on the board. Mm. You know, there wasn't an app and it would light up the problem. And I was like, oh, yeah, that is so cool. Because mm. <laughs> it is really good, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you yeah, know, being it able changes to light the game. up problems. It really is, makes it very efficient. Yeah. Efficient. I mean, the only bad thing about it probably is that it does make you a bit lazy, doesn't it? Mm. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not good. I'm not good if someone points out like six, seven holds, you know, it's points out a bold problem to me. I'm not very good at sort of remembering, the, you know, the sequence, you know, I might have to ask them a few times. And, yeah. uh, and I've, got, I've got worse at that maybe as I get older, but yeah, yeah. having the LED system, it, you know, <laughs> makes you lazy, doesn't it? Yeah. 
that's interesting. Do you think there's value to that skill set? I think there is. For I mean, for for spray walling or something, it makes sense. But do you think that is relevant to outdoor climbing in any way? Well, I think remembering moves is really helpful. Mm, for um, sure. yeah. If you if, if you if you're maybe not so much on boulder problems, but if you want to do stuff quick, or you know, you want to flash stuff, or yeah, do stuff quick. Um, yeah, I think being able to remember moves certainly red pointing. Like if you want to do red point a route quickly, you know, work it once, then red point it. I mean, some people have really good memories. I mean, mine's terrible. <laughs> um, so I think that's an advantage. And, you know, I think you would get better at that, you know, if you're climbing on a spray wall and, you know, setting problems and then, you know, you come back there and do them another time or, you know, someone gives you a problem to do and you do it. I think, yeah, it's, I think it is a good skill that, mm. but, you know, on a board, maybe less important. That makes sense. I, I guess I've climbed, I've sport climbed in a lot of areas where the holds themselves are pretty distinct, you know. Um, but when I think about the UK and places like Raventor or Malum Cove or things, it is that rock type where there's a lot more options and a lot more texture. And uh, it, it, yeah, it is more like picking out a single hold on a spray wall, I guess, than uh, than some of the areas that I've climbed. So yeah, yeah that makes sense. That's yeah. That's interesting. So what was moon climbing at the time? Did you have the vision for distributing the moon board all over the world and climbing on the same problems as other people? When did that idea come into the picture? I just, well, I just thought it was a really good idea. and I, I wanted to do it. And um, even if no one was going to buy it and um, yeah, I mean, it was for, for well, probably for 10 years, to be honest, it was very underground and niche and really people didn't know, know much about it. And, you know, we, we sold, you know, we sold a, a few sets of holds, but yeah, I don't know how many boards there were, you know, a few hundred around the world. Mm. Um, but yeah, there obviously the LEDs and then the, um, the LEDs and the, the app, yeah, completely sort of changed it, which was in, in 2016. Um, but yeah, it was, that's quite a small part of my business of moon climbing, you know, cause you know, I was selling my main, the main, my main business was climb, well, climbing clothing and mm. crash pads, you know, uh, training stuff. I mean, the moon board, yeah, fitted in with the sort of training, training stuff as well, like fingerboards and, um, but yeah, now the, now the moon board's like just, yeah, <laughs> the thing. Really big. Yeah, yeah, it's big. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear how big it's probably more than 50% of my company's turnover now. Okay. Really. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know, I don't know how many moon boards there are around the world now, cause it's been going so long, you know, and they don't have the records and everything, but there must be three or 4,000 moon boards. I'd have thought. Wow. Um, I mean, I think we've got, there's, there's about a hundred thousand active users, you know, people that are using it, you know, regularly. Wow. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's really, it's really taken off. Um, is that, is that just mind blowing? Yeah. I mean, it's great. It's yeah. I mean, it is incredible and, you know, I feel really lucky and fortunate and everything. And it's great to see, you know, to see so many moon boards out there and so many people, you know, having fun on a moon board and everything and training and stuff. So yeah, no, I feel really, really fortunate. Um, Obviously, got some competition now. <laughs> <laughs> yep, <laughs> it was yeah. always going to happen. Yeah, but I think the moon board's just so classic. I think there's always going to be a spot in every gym for, you know, whether it's the 2016 set or whatever. But there's there's always yeah. going to be a moon board. 
there's so much yeah. history, you know, attached yeah. to, to that set and those those holds. I'm yeah. curious. I mean, I'd never, I would never claim to say like it's perfect or anything. Mm. Um, but I think it's pretty good, even considering you know it's been around, kind of in this form, you know, since 2006. You know, we've you know have brought out a few new sets of holds and stuff. Yeah. You know, but um, but it's more or less how it was when it came out, and I still think it's pretty good, really. Yeah. Um, you know, every, everyone's got an opinion on you know what makes up a good board. Um, you know what makes up a good training board. Um, so you, you know you're never going to please everyone. Um, I mean, I always say, you know, I mean, one of the most popular boards in the world is the old 50 degree board that was at the schoolroom, you know, that was, you know, just slapped together, you know, with no thought, no planning, um, <laughs> just by a few, few guys who, you know, picked up bits of wood and stuff out of skips, you know, and chopped them up and everything. Yeah. And then, you know, whatever sort of, um, plastic, there weren't plastic holds. We had no polyester holes back then, um, you know, artificial climbing holes we we could get for free, you know, and then just stuck them on. And people love that. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes you can overplan things and stuff. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I'm going to mix in some listener questions. This one's from Griffin. And Griffin writes, Hey, Ben, as a guy living in a country with zero outdoor sports, having a moon board is a lifesaver. How do you feel about the evolution of the hold sets? Do you have a favorite year set or feel like one is a better is better fit for a training situation? And then he writes, thanks for setting up the talk with Ben. I've been really excited to hear from him. No, oh, thank you very much. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, for, for that guy who's you know, living in the middle of nowhere, I mean, having a moon board, I can see, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great thing for that. Um, I, I like all, I like all, I really do honestly like all the sets. I think, you know, I mean, I don't like every single hold in every single set, but I, you know, they've all got their sort of characteristics and everything. You know, I really like the originals, um, crimpy style. I mean, that's kind of in my, that's my sort of style of, uh, hold, you know, I've always been sort of good on crimps and everything. And I really, yeah, I really like the wooden holds as well. I mean, yeah, I really like the wooden holds. Definitely want to do some more wooden holds. Mm. Um, but I, I like, I like have, I like, you know, I like having the mixture of, you know, plastic and wood. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I don't have a favorite. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> this is a question from Rebecca. Uh, she writes: Are you going to add any new moonboard setups in the future? And have you thought about creating a circuit list of problems for the Moonboard app? Let's uh, let's start with that first question. Yeah, do you think you'll do new sets in the future? Uh, we'll probably do a new set in twenty twenty two next year. Okay, that's the plan. Awesome. Um, I know we're always getting asked <laughs> if we're going to sure. do new setups and stuff. Yeah. And um, yeah, my 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 view view on that is um, that I don't want to have too many setups. Basically, it's a because it kind of dilutes the, um, you know, the world uh, community of moonboarders really right. it splits everyone up. Um, but I, I, you know, with there's enough moonboarders now uh, setting enough problems and everything on all the different setups that, yeah, it's, we're re ready for another setup. So yeah, next year we'll have a setup. Awesome. And then what about, uh, what about her circuit question? I, you know, that kind of reminds me of like the Fontainebleau uh, circuit system. Do you That's, have anything like yeah. that or plans for we, anything like that? We don't, um, but we do. It's it's on the list. It's on the development list. Okay. Um, so that will be coming. Um, 
yeah, you better do circuits. Awesome. Yeah. And then this is a question from Carl. Looking back, what would you change about the moonboard holds or design? Um, well, if I was being honest, I thought the yeah the red range wasn't the the set C's. They they could have been a lot better. I don't think the design of those was was great. Um, maybe the yeah the the density of the foam, the type of foam we used on set A and set B. I don't know. I mean, it was quite a sort of open density, so it gave a sort of different texture. It's not as smooth as it could be, but. You know, I quite like the fact, I mean, that is one of the sort of big criticisms I hear about the moonboard is that, well, one, it's too hard, um, you know, and second, that the holds are unfriendly and um, aggressive, um, which, yeah, some of them are. And I think that's a good thing, personally. You know, it was designed, you know, the 50-degree board, the original 50-degree board at the schoolroom, you know, was exactly the same. It had some really nasty holds. Um, the stronger you are, the less nasty they become. Mm. And, um, you know, it was designed for training outdoors and doing sport climbs and you get a lot of nasty holds outside. And I think, you know, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to do hard stuff outside, you're going to have to crimp on flipping gnarly crimps. So do it inside. Are you going to get, are you at risk of getting more injured? Um, I don't know that you are. I mean, possibly, but I mean, getting injured is more about, sort of listening to your body, knowing when to stop, mm. um, you know, making sure you're not out of control when you're tired and things like that. So, and I don't think I've ever got a, a flapper on a moonboard. Ah. So, yeah. But maybe I've just been lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd love to ask this. I want to get into more of your training and how you have used the moonboard, how you currently use it how you see other people using it. Um, but I want to start with this. Just in general, like sharing the moonboard, putting it out into the world, having thousands of them out there and having, you know, 100,000 users. How has that influenced your climbing or your training? Like what have you gotten from that, from seeing how other people have used it or climbing on other problems that you never would have thought to set or things like that? How has that come full circle and shaped your own training or climbing? Um, I don't think it's shaped my climbing, really. What do you mean by that? I guess, um, you know, let's, let's take like two parallel universes, one where Ben Moon just continues to climb by himself on his own board in his cellar, and then another one where now you're climbing on the same board as thousands or hundreds of thousands of other people all around the world, and now yeah. you get to climb on the stuff they're making up and, and whatever else. Has that changed things? Any of your ideas about how to train or how to use the board uh, to its optimal? Well, I, I suppose it's just, you know, it's just like the moon board is a much more powerful training tool than that old cellar board, isn't mm, it? Mm. You know, for so many reasons, you know, as you know, like you just listed, you know, when you're, you're tapping into that sort of database of problems that, people all around the world, all these different, you know, climbers have set and stuff. I mean, although, you know, in one way you might look at the board and think it's kind of sort of basic, you know, there's a lot of variety just within the problems on that type of board. I mean, it's funny, really. I mean, 
you think board climbing is sort of straightforward and it's all the same, but actually all boards are sort of slightly different. You know, they all have sort of different ca- characteristics, I think, you know, and, and, you know, having that sort of volume of problems to go at is, you know, pretty amazing. How do you use the board and how has that changed over time? Um, I probably use it fairly similar to how I used to use the old 50 degree board really. Um, and how I still use the fit. Well, yeah. I mean the 50 degree board, well, basically, yeah, I would have like, sort of, I basically have limit bouldering sessions where maybe just working, you know, one, two, three move. Maybe it's the stand up of a, a hard problem. So just working mm. like really at my limit. And then I have, I have more sort of volume sessions where I just sort of warm up and then go up to a certain level and just try and do a load of volume. And I have a few sort of set workouts that I've done and everything as well. I mean, I've done lots, tried lots of different things sort of over the years, really. Someone asked a question about this. This is a question from Will. How would Ben recommend structuring sessions on the moon board? And I would love to just hear... Of all the things you've, that you've tried, what are some of those session formats that rise to the top that feel like staples that you stick with? Well, I, I mean, I, th- I would say for for sort of maximum strength power, I mean, yeah, like limit bouldering sessions. So that's like warming up, which maybe takes about 45 minutes, depending, you know, 30 or 45 minutes, I would say. And... Um, that's sort of gradually on a moonboard, I suppose, gradually sort of increasing the grade until, you know, probably up to about, well, for me, 7A plus, something like that, 7B. And then um, and then just working maybe two or three problems for 20 minutes a piece uh, with good rests in between each try, you know, maybe three, three minutes rest in between each try. That's kind of how I sort of think as maybe even more four minutes. Uh, that's how I sort of would structure a sort of limit bouldering session. Mm. Um, you know, that's probably an hour and a half board session, you know, if you count your warm up and everything. Um, and yeah, basically you're, you're, you're doing sort of three move, three move boulder problems really, or, or even one move boulder problems. Um, so that'd be one session. And then another session would be sort of a more volume session which again would be probably same warm up as for the sort of limit bouldering session. That could be like 10 boulder problems, you know, finishing at sort of yeah, seven, seven, eight plus or something. And then I would probably just do a load of problems around about that grade, around about at my flash, flash grade or, you know, second, second or maybe third try, um, you know, maybe do 10 problems or something. You know, so you, you might, you know, including your warm up, you might do 20, 20 problems or something like that. Okay. Do you put a cap on those, like no more than a certain number of tries in a session like that? Well, on the limit boulder problem, that'd be, like I say, probably maybe 20 minutes working one particular problem and then 20 minutes on another. Well, it's not a whole problem. It's part of a problem, really. It might only be one or two moves on that problem. Mm. Uh, and stop when, stop when, really stop when you as soon as you start to feel like your strength is starting to dip mm. then stop um i think if you keep going on there you're not going to get gains and you're going to risk getting injured and i would say the same for the other session as well as soon as you start to feel that 
you're dropping off, then yeah, I would stop. Or maybe maybe just go back down, just you know, warm down. Maybe do just a few easier problems to sort of finish off the session. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say those. I mean, I do do some. I do do some more structured sessions on the moonboard. You know, like you know, four sets of four problems with you know three or four minutes rest. But that's a little bit like that that uh, sort of volume session I just described. But it's just a little bit more structured. Um, okay and you know yeah you could do sort of pyramids and things like that um for me now at the sort of the stage that i'm at in my life you know mid 50s you know having trained for you know 30 years and stuff i'm not you know i'm not trying to get stronger i'm just trying to slow the decline <laughs> okay um yeah and i think my body's so used to sort of training and doing all these things i'm never really gonna i don't really feel like i'm gonna get there's not going to be this sort of magic, you know, magic ticket. So, you know, I tend to tend to sort of just do what I want to do, really do what I enjoy doing. So, yeah. Yeah. And what is that? I'm curious. I mean, you're, you're busy, you know, you're a busy guy. You've got a family now. You've got um, kids, I believe. Yeah. I've got a 12 year old daughter. 12 year old daughter. You've got a big company that you're, you know, you're running. Um, you've got a gym. What is your training schedule look like and what are the things that feel like the highest priority for you that you make sure that you try to do every week boulder yeah boulder how much of it is on the moon board versus other options um well i mean at the schoolroom we've got well yeah we've got three moon boards and then we've got the old 50 degree board from the school original schoolroom and then we've got a splat board um uh it's probably 50 50 between moonboard and then the the splat board and the old school board i probably do climb on the moonboard more than any other wall at the school room okay um, but i really try and force myself i mean i do i really think you know variety as much as you know is really key in climbing you know whether it's whether mm. you're climbing outdoors or whether you're climbing indoors you know and like i was saying about you know boards you know how it's you know it's easy to think the boards are all the same but actually they're all slightly different so i do think you know, I do try to sort of get as much variety in my climbing as possible. You know, and I go to, we, we're spoiled rotten for climbing walls in Sheffield as well. We've got amazing gyms. Um, so I do try to go to those as well a little bit just to get as much variety in my climbing tool. But yeah, bouldering is the key thing. And I probably do moonboard more than anything else. But yeah. Okay. And then which, how many of each and which of those sessions that we talked about would you try to fit in a week? Um, I probably, well, depends what time of, it, you know, it depends what uh, time of year it is really. And what my sort of plans are, what my goals are really. Um, you know, the last few years, you know, the prime sort of sport, I'm basically focused on sport climbing these days and, uh, the sort of prime sport climbing season is really sort of February, March through to sort of June. So yeah, winter's just sort of training really. And then, you know, once start climbing outdoors probably don't train very much or okay. yeah very okay. little um and in the winter when i'm training i mean i probably focused mainly on sort of i'd say I'd do both of those but main be yeah, probably more sort of on strength side of things okay so more on the sort of limit bouldering trying to do sort of really hard boulder problems than sort of the volume stuff um but then probably a bit more volume 
when it gets closer to going outdoors. Okay. What what might that ratio look like? Is it like two strength and power sessions for every volume session and then it flips? Uh, yeah, or... maybe not quite that, but yeah, okay. probably something like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, Got it. Two, two in a week is maybe a bit too much, but mm. yeah, something like that, I would say. That's probably, yeah, it's probably good for people to hear that two in a week is maybe a bit too much. How many total days a week do you train or climb these days? Um, right now, I'm not actually climbing that that much because I've been surfing quite a bit. But, um, you know, before the summer holidays, the first half of the year, I was climbing a lot. I mean, I don't know, four times, four times a week or something. Okay. okay. Maybe once they're starting, once they're um, climbing outdoors and maybe try, starting trying to red point routes. It was less than that, but yeah, I would say four times a week. Okay. So well, we've talked about... I don't know if that is a lot, actually. <laughs> it feels quite a lot to me. Yeah. <laughs> Your listeners have been thinking, that's not a lot. <laughs> well, some of them. I mean, yeah, those moonboard sessions, those board sessions are really intense. You can really get a lot of work done. I think it's hard to have yeah. more than like three quality bouldering sessions in a week you know maybe yeah. you can add more if some of them are lower intensity and things but i mean uh, yeah obviously it really depends yes, exactly like, yeah, for, yeah 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 the young kids listening are gonna think we're crazy but i mean everyone's yeah i mean everyone's everyone's got different ideas on you know training and what works and stuff and you know yeah what works for one person is not necessarily gonna work for someone else and yeah. everything um i mean i certainly need more rest these days than i used to when i was younger mm. so um, yeah. I'm always interested in where people go wrong and, you know, asking someone like you, who's met so many climbers and observed so many climbers and climb with so many high level performers, um, the trends that you see with the people that are having success. And then maybe on the other side, some of the trends that you see where people are kind of missing the boat, so to speak. And I'd maybe a way of tackling this is I'd love to hear if you had more time, um, you know, if you were back in your twenties again and you could train every day or five days a week or whatever, what are some of the other things that you would spend more time doing if you had the bandwidth for it? And then what are things that you see people doing that you think aren't helpful that maybe, um, miss the mark in this kind of modern training environment that we're in? Does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. Yes, yeah, a very, very tricky one to answer. Um, yeah, I don't know what to say really. Uh, I mean, what's the most? What's the most common mistake? Yeah, let's go with that. I mean, I've, well, yeah, I don't know really. Um, <laughs> prob- <laughs> it's a tricky one, isn't it? I yeah. mean, is it overdoing it? You know, doing mm. too much? Yeah, overtraining. Maybe okay. I don't know. What do you think? I mean. Mm or not focusing on their weaknesses mm. doing what they liked yeah. doing I'll yeah I'll speak for myself I guess I mean I'm I'm someone who's always looking outside of climbing and trying to draw knowledge from these other areas and so many other sports talk about building foundational strength and into creating athletes and as climbers treating ourselves more like athletes I find that really compelling but a mistake I've made is kind of going too far one way or the other. Like I think the sweet spot is probably to add a little bit of strength training and, and these other supplemental things like hangboarding or lifting weights or doing rings or things like that, core training, whatever. 
adding a little bit of that to support your climbing. Uh, whereas I've gone way too far into that and I've made like a whole summer training program, mostly that sort of stuff. And I, if I could do it all over again, I think I would spend a lot more time seeking out basic board climbing, spray wall climbing, um, or just trying harder boulders in the gym and doing what you're describing of, I'm not going to try to send this boulder today. I'm just going to try to work on these two moves or these three moves on this 12 move boulder. Um, if I could do it all again, I'd spend a lot more of my time trying to do high quality bouldering and you know do a little bit of that other stuff but really that's funny you should say that actually because probably if i was looking back at what i would do differently i'd probably do a bit more of that supplementary stuff <laughs> <laughs> but that's, you know because i didn't haven't you know haven't done it very much yeah but, um what comes to mind for you what would you do more of it's funny isn't it because you when you look at when you look in the sort of media these days or over the last sort of 10 years and stuff and you look at you know the top climbers like you know alex magos or whatever and um they are all very strong on sort of doing, you know, ring exercises and all, you know, front leaves and all that kind of stuff, you know, and that is much a bigger part of training these days, isn't it? Mm. Doing all that core, that supplementary stuff, sort of all over strength. Yeah. You know, which, yeah, we certainly didn't do that back in the day. Yeah. It's changed the climbing style too. Like when I watch films like One Summer and The Real Thing, I mean, the type of stuff you guys were climbing on, it makes sense why you were doing everything that you were doing. It was, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, all these exactly. little limestone crimps and stuff, these really hard fingery problems at the base of Raven Tour or these other crags. Yeah. Um, and then when you look at the sort of, the, the sort of hard boulder, the, you know, the modern bouldering, indoor bouldering now, the comp style bouldering and everything, it makes sense to do more of that kind of, you know, the sort of conditioning stuff, you know, mm -hmm. um, maybe possibly. <laughs> I want to ask you about Voyager. This is kind of a, am I getting that name right? Yep. That's Voyager, right. Yeah. Voyager, yeah. The Boulder <laughs> Problem. Ask me? <laughs> yeah. This is, I mean, we're jumping all over the place, but I, um, I have this on my list and I, I hadn't heard much about this one. You know, Hubble is, um, synonymous with Ben Moon. That's, that's such a big route name that we all recognize. Tell me about Voyager and, where that fits when you look back at your career as a climber and your accomplishments where does that one you know how does that stack up i guess oh i'm very proud of voyager yeah that's one of my most yeah one of the sort of top top three probably um can you describe it yeah voyager's like a it's a yeah it's a boulder problem in the peak district on the gritstone at this crag called burbage which is basically the closest gritstone crag to sheffield it is really like a 10 minute drive really nice crag and it's just uh, voyages on this sort of this block that sort of juts out and you climb the underside of the arete of this of this block on sort of small edges and a little bit of sort of compression and hill hooking and stuff and yeah i'd spotted it as a stand-up oh, a long long time ago and uh did it in i don't know common it was 2004 2005 something like that and that was i gave it 8b i think it's maybe a soft i think they think it's maybe a little bit of a soft 8b so v13 something like that and then, um, and that's called Voyager. And then there was this obvious sort of start because that was like a kind of jump start or standing start. And there was an obvious start to it. And so I spent about two years trying to do that, spent a long time trying to do that and finally did that in 2006 mm. when I was 40 years old um, <laughs> after a lot of sessions. And uh, yeah, wow. it's a really cool, cool problem. And I think it's yeah, 8B plus um, or 14A. 
Um, so it was the hardest, one of the, well, it was one of the hardest problems in the Peak District at the time. It was the hardest problem on grit. I think it still is the hardest problem on grit, actually. Yeah. It was it was unrepeated for, I think, almost 10 years. So it's pretty tricky. And, you know, it's a stunning line as well. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I'm really proud of that one. Just a quick clarification. You said 14A. Did you mean V14? Would you give that a bold Sorry, I grade? mean V14, yes. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I mean V14. I mean, yeah, V14. Yeah. yeah. Is that your yeah. hardest boulder? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, AB plus. Yeah. That's amazing. How How was it? perceived at the time like what was how did it stand up in the broader climbing world at the time was it um getting coverage in the magazines i think it was yeah it got it got quite yeah it did get yeah it did get quite a lot of coverage really yeah everywhere yeah and i read that you quit climbing after that is that true uh yeah i well yes i did kind of I mean, Obviously I climbed a little back. bit, but maybe once, once, a, once a month, I probably went to a wall. Um, but yeah, I just kind of lost motivation. Hmm. And I think maybe the business was probably taking quite a bit of work. And uh, my daughter was born in 2009. Um, so yeah, I had sort of quite a lot, quite a lot on and just, yeah, wasn't really motivated to climb. Didn't really get back into that until about 2013 or something. Yeah. I want to dig into that. Why do you think that was, as you look back, was it the lack of having a clear goal? Was it something else? Was it burning out from spending so much time on Voyager or the, the sit start to Voyager? Yeah, I think, um, no, it wasn't, no, it wasn't to do with that, but it was probably, like you say, partly having, not having a goal, really, not having something I really wanted to do. Um, I don't know why that was. I mean, probably needed to, yeah, I don't know. If, yeah. I was going to say I probably needed to travel a bit more outside of the UK and everything, but there was, there were, I did have stuff still to do in the UK. So I think it was just combination, not having the goal, being really busy with work. And then, you know, my daughter coming along and yeah, just not really having the time. Like I said, I didn't completely pack in. I sort of ticked over, but, you know, probably going to the gym once a month or something or a couple of times a month. Mm. I mean, I'm really fortunate in that my 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 weight doesn't really fluctuate so um you know i'm the same weight now as i was you know 20 years ago wow. so even if i don't do very much my weight stays the same my base finger strength's really good as well so you know it doesn't take me long to get back into shape really yeah um if i have a bit of time off and you've come back um you've really come back since then i mean you ended up repeating steve mcclure's root rain shadow another 9a yeah what area is that uh that's at malham Malham so that's in north yorkshire okay you came back and did that um i've seen clips and interviews of you trying northern lights again and that's something i'd like to talk about more too but what brought you back to climbing or what brought that motivation back it was rain shadow actually steve's root rain shadow malham my wife and i were just up up at malham just on a few days away just walking and um jordan buys this english climber was uh, was trying this route i didn't even know what it was but yeah he told me oh it's rain shadow right there and i was like wow that looks amazing <laughs> so yeah it was a goal it was like some you know it was a goal that brought me back it was like god yeah i'd like to climb that and i was like oh maybe i'm not too old maybe i can <laughs> you know maybe i can get back into shape and uh yeah amazingly i did manage to get back into shape and yeah i did it so yeah, yeah. i was and uh yeah, I've been super motivated since then, actually, ever since getting back into climbing, really. So I think yeah, having the rest was good. And 
I sort of look at climbing maybe slightly differently now and uh, yeah, no, it's good. Can you elaborate on that? What feels different about it now? Um, I'm, I'm probably a bit more, well, I'm probably mellower about climbing, you know, more relaxed. Um, yeah, you know, I have goals and everything, but they're not like the be all and end all. And, you know, I just try and, you know, take each day as it comes and it sounds like corny and everything, but, you know, and just enjoy the moment and just enjoy being out there in the countryside, climbing, you know, with friends. And yeah, if you get a route done, you know, it's almost like a bonus. So yeah, maybe yeah, a little bit more mellow really. I'd wanted to ask you this earlier when we were talking about moonboard training and I'll ask it now. You know, when I watch these old videos of you and Jerry training together, and I, I know Jerry's talked about this a lot. He talked about it in his book. He always emphasized power. Like if you have more power, that's the hardest thing to get. But if you have more power, you automatically have more endurance for these routes. So, you know, you guys would do all this training, but at least for him, the main purpose of that was to to train for route climbing. And so much of the route climbing you guys were doing back then, like a route like Hubble is so bouldery that it it yeah. seems like it must be a pretty easy uh, transfer of that bouldering strength and power to the route. But Rain Shadow, from what I understand, is you know a longer, pumpier route. How did your preparation change or what would you do differently? What do you do differently if you are excited about a sport climb, a pumpy route versus you know a hard three move boulder project, something like that? Um, well, I mean, endurance, I would say comes a lot quicker than strength. Um, I mean, rain shadows, yeah, you do like a, you do like a route, um, an 8A plus, 8A plus route. So that's what, um, 13B? 13C, 8A plus. 13C, yeah. you do 13, 13C route. Then you're into a V11 boulder problem. Mm. And then you're probably into a... 13d route 13c route after the bold problem to the top so yeah you want to do the first part you want to be fit so you're not getting tired on the first part strong so you can do the boulder problem and then fit to do the top part <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but i think you know the fitness for me you know the fitness is going to come on that route really um so I feel, you know, kind of what Jerry says is right. You know, I just want to get, I want to turn up that route feeling really strong because, I, I, you know, the fitness is going to come from working the route. Mostly build fitness by climbing on the route. Yeah, okay. I would say so. Especially if it's a, if it's a hard route that you're going to be on, you know, for multiple sessions, then you'll build, uh, you'll build fitness on, on the route, I think. I think. <laughs> I always like suddenly question myself. Um, but yeah, I think I, I, yeah, I think focusing on strength is still the best, probably the best plan. Um, certainly as you get older as well, because that's what's going to deteriorate. I mean, I've, I've noticed, you know, over the last five, six, seven years, whatever, my fitness almost seems to get better but it's my strength that's it is going down. So that's mm. what I want to try and sort of maintain or slow the decline. It was funny. I was talking to Steve Mace the other day about this and he, he was going like, yeah, you know, with your endurance, he goes, yeah, it's just like you, you just top it up each year. You know, it's not, it's like you can keep on getting fitter and fitter as you get older and older, but mm. it's strength that you need to hang on to. Um, 
but everyone's different. So yeah, I don't know. I've heard you talk in the past. I think I read a written interview with you where you talked about um, how you used the boards and you kind of divided out your sessions into like, you know, the the three move problems or the power that we already talked about, the seven move problems. I assume that's like the volume climbing. But you talked about 20 move problems as well as being kind of an, an important staple for you. Am I getting that right? And And do you still do any of that? No, I do... I do circuits. I okay. do do circuits and I do do routes as well at the wall. I mean, I have done 20 move problems in the past, but not very often. Okay. Um, so no, it's more long, the longer stuff, you know, five to eight minutes climbing. Okay. Where would you do a circuit like that? Um, I would do it. Yeah. Either at a wall on a, on a, on a flat board, on a big circuit board. Okay. If it had, you know, if it wasn't too difficult, um, you know, if it had big enough holds and stuff, because obviously, well, or depending on what angle it is and everything, yeah. Or I'd do it on, I'd do, I just like do like a sort of volume route session at the wall, mm. you know, climbing at around my sort of on-site level, I suppose. So a bit pumped but manageable. Okay. So it sounds like these days you're really focusing on the strength and power, like we talked about, yeah, and then building the fitness on the rock whenever you can yeah. get out. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty simple. Uh, having said that, I went to the wall the other day and I was like, oh, <laughs> I got a shock at how unfit I was because I haven't really <laughs> been doing any routes. And I was like, okay, I need to do one session a week. So I'm going to start doing one session a week at the wall. You know, I think my, my base of endurance has gone <laughs> really low. So I maybe just need to top it up a little bit, but yeah, I, I do think, yeah, mainly focusing on strength is a good strategy. Um, I want to ask this question from Steve. Do you do roots? What's that? Do you do root climbing? In the gym? No, outdoor. Are you into yeah, bold, yeah. just bouldering or you do bouldering and roots? Both, yeah. This last year, it's been a heavy emphasis on bouldering, but um, historically, I'm more into sport climbing and it's probably becoming more of a 50-50 split for me. Yeah. Yeah. Is it hard yeah, to I do really... both hard? I mean, I never have done, well... Yeah, well, maybe not. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I'm still playing with this. I'm still unsure how much of each to mix in a year. Like if I should just double down on bouldering while I'm motivated for it and not worry about maintaining the the fitness or some part of me is afraid that if I stay away from sport climbing for too long, my baseline endurance will drop way down. Whereas yeah. it's pretty I mean, easy to maintain only, that. Yeah, I probably only sport climb for a few months a year, to be honest. Anyway, oh, okay. you know, three or four months a year. I mean, if I did five months, it'd probably be split into spring and autumn anyway. Mm. So, you know, the rest of the time I am bouldering just it tends to probably be indoors. Yeah. So they, they probably do go together, but yeah. This is a question from Steve McClure. That's how uh, you and I connected. And uh, he had a long email for you. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically he's wrote two full paragraphs about how much of a hero you are of his. And yeah, he told this, that, this great story about, um, I think the first time you said hi to him at the gym, he like had to walk away cause he couldn't speak. <laughs> and now you guys climb, you know, at the same level, yeah, but yeah. he's, Steve's he still amazing. considers you a hero. Uh, he asks, does Ben feel the age thing yet? And how has that manifested itself? And he writes for me at 51, I have plenty of days where I feel like I'm 35 again. But I also have days where I feel like I'm 75, days where my body aches all over, injuries feel permanent, and psych is low. 
as I get older, the ratio of good to bad days is going the wrong way. But at the moment, I still feel young most of the time. Personally, I dread the day where I feel 75 most of the time. And I wonder if that will happen when I'm 60. Anyway, I just love Steve. But um, it's good. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. How are oh, you? How are you great. feeling the uh, the age thing? What's changed for you? Um, I mean, I would say up until um, it's just in the last three, four years, I feel like I've maybe aged quite a bit. I don't know. How old are you now? I don't I'm know. 50, if I'm 55. Okay. I'm 55 now. Got it. I did Rain Shadow when I was 49, just before my 50th birthday. Wow. Um, well, like I said earlier, I mean, I definitely need more rest mm. than I used to. But I mean, I would say I've had less injuries since getting back into climbing, you know, in the last 10 years, since 2013, than I had when I was younger. And I don't know if that's just because I'm more sensible and more aware of, you know, being older and that I've got to be be careful or, or whether I'm maybe not training as hard as I used to or that I'm taking rest or, or what, I don't know. Um, but in that sense, yeah. And um, I think it depends on the style of climbing. I feel old. I don't feel that old when I get on some small little crimps sort of dynamic stuff. But if it's sort of bigger styled stuff, I, yeah, I do feel old. I feel like, you know, you know, if I look at my body, I feel like I've, you know, I feel like my muscles, you know, they, you know, they don't look how they used to look, mm. you know, I can see I'm starting to sort of <laughs> shrink in a way, even though my weight's the same, but, um, yeah, I mean, I don't feel, I don't feel like, I don't believe he feels 70 sometimes. <laughs> <saying that. laughs> um, so Steve's probably a bit like me though, in terms of, I mean, he's, his weight doesn't really change either. He's really good on crimps and everything. And yeah. So I don't know if I've answered these questions, really. I'm sure Steve will be cranking out well into his 60s. <laughs> he's so motivated. Yeah, he's amazing. How are you feeling as far as that goes? Do you still have unfinished business goals? Oh, I've got so much unfinished business. Yeah, but, you know, they might happen. They might not happen. Yeah. You know, I've had a, I've had a good innings. I'm, you know, not going to get stressed about it. Mm. Um, like I said, I've been surfing quite a bit this last sort of two months and I've really been really enjoying that not really sort of felt that motivated for climbing but you know things go in sort of phases and everything and uh yeah I mean I think for anyone really I think you know certainly with me when you know when you you, you know your motivation is up and down all the time you know it's good when it's down just to everything's easy when it's up it's when it's down it's like you know what do you do but I think it's yeah it's good to try I try and tick over and just do a little bit just to keep your sort of hand in there even mm. when I'm not motivated, which I think is a good thing for people to practice. Yeah. One route I want to ask you more about, we touched on it earlier, but I'd love to hear more about Northern Lights. And for people listening, this is a route that you bolted in 83. Uh, you tried it a lot in the mid nineties and ultimately walked away from climbing from what I understand because of this route for trying it for years and not doing it and just burning out. Um, Steve McClure ended up doing the first ascent in 2000. And I remember watching a short film. It was a really great little video from Boreal about you trying it again in like 2016 or 2017. Uh, yeah, and yeah. You had been, I think you'd been training with Tom Randall and uh, kind of coming back to the route with a fresh perspective, a fresh approach. And at the time you seemed really motivated. I think you said, 
I think the last line from that film was, I've just got to keep going until I do it. Um, <laughs> how do you think about that route now? Did I say that? I think so. <laughs> God. I wouldn't say that now. Um, no, I have felt really motivated. And yeah, I mean, I've tried it. 2016, 20, yeah, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, you know, I mean, I've had, I don't know how many, I've had more than a hundred days on it over the last 25 wow. years. It's, I've tried it more than anything else. And funnily enough, actually, I mean, I build, I, I, I belayed um, Alex Magos on it, actually, uh, not the day he did it, actually, unfortunately, and I belayed Will Bosey when he did it this year, I think it was this year, yeah. And, um, yeah, there's been more people trying it and stuff, and that's been really helpful with sort of sequences and everything like that. Um, and, yeah, I've got really close. I mean, this year was the closest ever. Really? I really, I was just like, for a couple of days, I was, I was just like, oh, man, I'm going it, to, it, it's there. I'm going to do it. <laughs> and then I went down a hill. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. Yeah, so, but who knows? And, yeah, I've not really thought about it for next year, but... Mm. Yeah, it is a big one, but it, yeah, maybe it's got away. Mm. Um, then That's... this, yes, yeah, this other really good climber, this guy Josh uh, did it this year as well. Uh, he's like only like seventeen or something, which is really cool. So yeah, it's had you know it's had two ascents this year. It's fascinating because we don't hear stories like this very often of that much effort put into a route and the outcome's really uncertain. You know, yeah. Is it that good of a route? Is it just that you feel so invested? You've put so much into it. Is it the challenge of it? What is it that has kept you coming back to this one? It is a really good route. I mean, it's like 15 meters long. So what's that? 45, 50 feet long, um, probably 20 degrees overhanging. And you do like sort of 10 foot of not very hard climbing. Uh, and then you just straight into the hard climbing and it's just really sustained at a certain level. You know, it's a bit like sort of running an 800 meter sprint at race or something like that. Mm. You know, it probably take, yeah, would take me maybe three to two to three minutes to red point it and stuff. And yeah, it's got some, it's cool. I mean, it's got some pretty gnarly little crimps on it and everything, but it's, yeah, it's a really cool route. Although they have found a knee bar on it now this year. Oh. They found a knee bar on it. It's like knee bars are just incredible. So it's just, <laughs> That's something that's changed in climbing knee bars. I mean, just so many people just climb in knee pads these days, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. It's just like a, those are two more points of contact, the knees. Right. Is that exciting? Do you are you gonna are you gonna wear a knee pad I, on that I mean, thing or or do you I think feel... I'm too old? <laughs> Get okay. too old. <laughs> okay. Uh, do you mean on that particular route? Yeah. Well, the knee bar that they they get two. Josh gets two very marginal ones, which really don't look like they would help very much, um, which I would probably not good enough to get. I mean, they're incredible with skill with their knee bars and stuff. And then there's one up top, which does look good just before the sort of final, final hard bit of climbing, which I have wondered, I did, I wondered in the past whether you could get a knee bar in there, but I, I, they have, but I can't get it to work. And mm. Ryan Pascal, another British climber, he couldn't get it to work. Mm. But I think if your leg goes in there, it does look like it's good and it would give you just a little bit back for the for the last section. But if I go back on it, I won't. I'm just going to do it my way, I think. I mean, I do feel, I think it's a bit sad in a way, mm. um, you know, when these sort of classic routes, they find like knee bars, because it does totally change the, um, 
you know, the style and often the grade of the route, you know, um, although grades often don't, they often don't get downgraded. Right. Um, but anyway, but it's, yeah, it's just a new, a new technique, isn't it? Yeah. It's interesting that they're not allowed to wear knee pads in competitions though, isn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like if you, like if you couldn't wear a knee pad, a lot of these knee pads, like knee, knee bars that people get on these routes, they just wouldn't be viable, would they? Right. They wouldn't work. I'm curious with Northern Lights, are there any lessons that stand out from just this journey with this route? Anything that the route has taught you? No, not really, except that red pointing hard routes is really hard. <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, could I do something different? I mean, I feel I've tried everything possible mm. um, through this route. You know, I don't look back. I don't look back and think, oh, you know, I should have done this or I should have done that. You know, I have really tried everything hmm. and got really close. Um, but yeah. Well, it's an inspiring story, man, regardless of the outcome. It's, uh, yeah, it's the story that doesn't get shared enough, I think in climbing, but yeah. Yeah. It must happen a lot to people, don't they? But to, to people, you know, they spend a lot of time on routes and they don't, they don't do it. I mean, mm. I know loads of people anyway. Yeah. We just, I've just made these three short films actually about red pointing. Okay. Um, which we're about to sort of release. They're on sort of red point tactics and stuff. And um, yeah, one of the things I've sort of classified sort of different levels of red pointing, um, as in easy red point, hard red points, like really hard red points, and then sort of lifetime red points. And uh, yeah, obviously Northern Lights is like a sort of lifetime red point. It's my absolute light limit, you know, and, uh, you know, Maybe I won't even do it. Hmm. Are those available? Uh, they're not out yet. Okay. They'll be out very soon. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. I'll... They're only like uh, three, seven minute films. Okay. But hopefully I'll... people will find them useful. Yeah. I look forward to watching those and I will link to them for people. Nice. I want to ask a few more listener questions. I got a couple of questions about the Moonboard Mini, which I don't know much about. Um, I'll ask Markham's question first. Any background on the Mini? would be great to hear and any future plans for the mini. Maybe you can just tell us what it is for, for people listening. Uh, mini moonboard is just a small version of the, the standard moonboard. So it's only um, two panels high, so um, eight foot high, but it's still set at 40 degrees and it's got a slightly smaller kickboard and it uses the original. It's only got one setup on it. It was only released last year, 2019. So uh, so then you got it's got this, the original holes, which are the orange ones, the little crimpy ones, and then it's got the three sets of wood on it. At the moment, there's no plans to do a new mini moonboard setup. It's not as popular as the standard one. Most people have the standard one, mm. um, but I think there's like fifteen hundred problems or two thousand problems on the app. Wow. You know, there's a, there's a lot to go at. The grades are really tough. I thought someone was going to comment on that. But. Oh, really? I think the grades are really harsh. Um, so, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe as boards get smaller and smaller, maybe grades get more compressed. I don't know, because, you know, mm. you're doing less moves. It might just be something that's, that it's hard to control that, the whole, 
Mm. I mean, the grading is just a can of worms, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I mean, that's an interesting question. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the moonboard grades because it it almost has become its own ecosystem. Like I think of well, it, it has, hasn't it? Yeah, I think of the moonboard grades as like you just set them over here and they're their own yeah. thing. And to me, yeah. at least, who's I'm not very good at the moonboard, and I haven't done much board climbing in the you know in the big picture of my total climbing time. I'm so much worse at the moonboard than any other type of climbing is if you're just comparing grade numbers. And it it seems like some people who really I am as well. I am that's interesting. Well. Okay, that's interesting to hear. That's what I wanted to get at. Like, do you think the grades translate to outdoor climbs or are they totally different? No, no, they okay. don't. They're harder. They're okay. harder. Okay. Yeah. And they're getting you hear, harder. You heard it here, and for, getting, folks. As, as each setup gets released, they're getting harder and harder. <laughs> <laughs> I'm determined for, well, I'm, I've got now, I'm starting to think like I'm 55, I'm in decline. I shouldn't be allowed to grade anymore. I'm comparing myself to, you know, when I was a better climber, you know, so everything just, everything's just feeling hard. But um, Mm. yeah, I mean, it's funny because I've got the 2016 and the 2019 at the schoolroom. And, you know, when the 2016 came out, people were like, oh, these grades, they're so hard. You know, now we've got the 2019, I've climbed on the 2019 for the last couple of years. I mean, they're another level of hard. Um, You know, I go back onto 2016 when I want to make myself feel better about myself um <laughs> but you know it's impossible my only goal is to have the grades consistent across the different setups mm. you know if you can have consistency that's all that matters i mean i just yeah it's a bit frustrating that you know i can't climb a 7b plus on a 20, 2019 setup or something or wow. a 7c or whatever or 7c plus and i can climb 8a plus on the school board 50 degree board but, you know, at the end of the day, it's just training. And as long as they're either, you know, cons- the grades are consistent, I think that's all you can hope for, really. I got to say, that makes me feel a lot better. And you heard it here, folks. Even Ben Moon thinks the moon board is hard. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great. Um, how hard do you climb on the moon board? And it, uh, it sounds like it changes um, depending on plus the... plus is the hard. I think I have done an 8A on the 2016 setup. Okay. Um, and I've done 7C plus on the 2017 setup. And I think I've... I might have done 70 plus on the 2019 setup. I've certainly done a few seven C's, but I've climbed eight A, eight A plus on the school room, the original 50 degree school room board, mm. you know, and people used to say that I had hard grades. <laughs> so, so yeah, V10 or maybe, you know, one V11 yeah, on maybe, the moon board, maybe V11. V12 on the school board. And you've climbed V14 outside. So that, yeah, that makes me feel a lot better, actually. That's great. Yeah, Yeah, no, they're tough. They're tough. (laughs) Florian asked a question about the mini. Florian writes, I built a moonboard mini during COVID lockdown, and it's become my absolute favorite training tool. I find it to be the most technical of all the boards. Since it's too short to include a bunch of dead points, a lot of the difficulty comes from creative movements that require body tension. I find it to be the best moonboard variant for training for rock and expanding my movement repertoire. I'm wondering if Ben agrees and if he sees this as a closer replication uh, to those legendary UK seller boards. That's really interesting. That's interesting email. Um, well, I'll be honest, I haven't got a mini moonboard at the moment. Um, so I'm not climbing on a mini moonboard. Uh, I've got friends who are, but uh, they're not in Sheffield. Um, but I'm moving house soon and I'm going to get a put it. I would like to put a mini moon board so I can climb on it. Um, 
But yeah, it's interesting how he sort of describes climbing on it. I can kind of picture it, you know, because you're only doing two moves really or three moves to get to the top of the board and everything. Um, you know, and you, you, you know, you start lying down and well, I know when I did have the mini moon board and I was climbing on it, you know, you start lying down and you, you do get into these sort of interesting positions and everything, but I haven't climbed on the problems that people are setting now on the mini moon board. So I couldn't really comment on that. Mm. I'd be, uh, I'd be making it up. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you this. There's a lot of people that have the moon board at home, especially now with COVID it's for a lot of people, it's the only thing that they're climbing on. And, you know, earlier you talked about variety, how important that is, uh, building this big repertoire of movement and just mixing things up all the time. Do you have any recommendations or thoughts for people that only have the moon board or do the vast majority of their climbing on the moon board? Um, well, try and try and do problems, try and work, do problems and work on problems that are not, that don't play to your strengths, I would say, to try and get that, um, you know, balance in your climbing, really. Uh, I think that's all you can do, really. Um, yeah, be experimental, you know, be adventurous, you know, look at, you know, what other people are doing on the moon board and do that. You know, if, if you're talking about someone who's just, that's their only thing they've got. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, that's that's what I'd say. Mm. Well, we're hoping to cool. get some. We're, we are working on some sort of um, new tools for the for the moonboard, you know, which would which would help people in those situations. Okay. As well, so, can you give us a, t- a sneak peek, a teaser? What do you mean? We're just sort of analysing people's sort of logbooks, you know, their movement patterns and stuff on the moonboard. Uh-huh. Okay. And are you are you talking about like different types of holds or, or yeah, different types of holds, style of problems, okay. you know where they're climbing on the board, that kind of thing, and comparing that to other people and seeing if they've got any kind of glaring admissions or whether there's we can point them in some whether they favour a certain style of problem or a certain type of hold or whether they're good at you know certain things and suggest things to sort of work on their weaknesses and everything. Oh, that's cool. So that would automatically happen through the app. Like it would give them recommendations yes. to work on weaknesses. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, I think, I mean, t- tension are doing something, aren't they? I don't know what, cause I've not climbed on tension board, but you know, I do, I, you know, there's other boards out there. <laughs> <You've> <laughs> ben, ben Moon can't be seen climbing on a tension board. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, you know, I've climbed on a kilter board. Um, and, uh, yeah, I know, Tension have been doing something similar. I don't know what I don't know what they're doing, but yeah, maybe something similar. You know, okay. I think there's a lot of potential there for sort of you know analyzing what a user's doing and seeing if you know they can do something different. So yeah, back to that person. Yeah, try and find try and find problems that you know aren't you wouldn't normally do. Basically, mm. this is a question from Pogo Stick Joe. <laughs> I love this question. Uh, ben has a featured role in the Real Rock 14 film about Joe's Valley. I think it was, a, you know, a clip, old footage of you, probably doing Black Lung or something. Black Lung, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, Pogo Stick Joe writes, I'd like to hear his definition of dousy fuck since he shouted that at himself after a failed attempt at the boulder. It's become a fun thing to shout anytime <laughs> I or my wife uh, mess anything up, and I want to make sure we are using it properly. 
what was the first word? I don't think he's heard it right. Dowsy. Dowsy. That, that doesn't mean anything to me. Okay. I, I don't think I would have said that word. I must have said something else. Okay. Uh, I was probably ju- I was probably just cursing myself. <laughs> well, good question. It gets more complicated. I'll have to watch that again. We'll have to. I'll have to watch that. We'll have to figure out what you said. Is that in the latest? That film about Joe's Valley. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, watch that. I'll have to watch that again. Yeah, it's a great <laughs> movie. That wasn't it. <laughs> what does that feel like? I was going to ask you this earlier about you know like one summer and the real thing and these other clips and and all these other climbing films. What does it feel like to watch those and look back? Uh, yeah, it's funny. I mean, they just look so dated now, don't they? It's like just such a it's just a lifetime ago. Um, but yeah, it's funny. I love hearing little stories like you just read out there. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because people are still people talk to me about sort of things I said in in one summer or real thing. And uh, yeah, it's weird. <laughs> All right, Pogo Stick Joe, we don't know. If you yeah, like we'll it, just keep, you on that. just keep using it. Keep saying it. <laughs> keep saying That's it. Scottish. <laughs> uh, this Do- is from... Maybe, maybe Dozy. Dozy. Dozy, yeah, okay. Could have been Dozy. Dozy. Dozy fuck. What does that mean? As in Dozy, as in you sleep, going to sleep, going for ah. dozing off. Dozy fuck. Yeah, that is it. I think I even, I think he wrote that and I read it wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. It means, just, you, means useless kind of. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Okay. Uh, this is from Oscar. I, I can answer this one. Oscar writes, ask him how I can see the real thing and why it's not online. Oscar, it is online. I just watched I it yesterday. It oh, really? Yeah. I found a, a version of it and I will link to it in the show notes. Is it supposed to be oh, online? Cool. Yeah, it is supposed to be online, but I mean, okay. YouTube took it down. It was okay because they were they. I got these complaints that we didn't have the right to use the music, which I'm sure is not true because I spent ages mm. when we made that film getting the music right, the rights to use those that music in the okay. video. Huh? So it's really annoying that they've taken it down. Okay. Well, someone else put it up, and it's up for now, as of right, December first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'll uh, I'll link to it, and hopefully it stays. Yeah, I'll on. it's on my list of things to do to try and contact. Well, I have contacted YouTube, but it's with mm. these big companies, it's like I don't know. It's just a computer behind there, isn't there? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. This is from Anderson. Did Ben do any expedition style missions? Any sort of remote type two fun? Anything like that? Any characters or stories from those trips? Expeditions? Yeah. No. Nope. No. I went to the Himalayas once to go bouldering, but we didn't go up any mountains. <laughs> Did that ever appeal to you at all? Uh, well, yes. That is what I wanted to do when I when I first got into climbing, you know, oh, okay. when I was at school and everything. I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to be a mountaineer. I wanted to do all the famous North Faces like the Eiger and the Matterhorn and... I read all Chris Boninton's books and stuff. Um, but yeah, I just got sidetracked by the rock climbing. <laughs> Never looked back. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, I like the mountains. And then what about uh, what about fashion? What about clothing? Because I know that moon climbing is so much more than the moon board. People probably don't know that. And we talked about that, like how the moon board has taken over. But you started with S7 even before that. And you've always it seems like you've always been interested in climbing style and fashion and you've always had a look, you know, and that look has changed from one mm. summer to the real thing to the two thousands and, and beyond now. But 
I can tell, and, and we can all tell watching these films of you, you've always been thoughtful about how you present yourself and what you wear, and that's reflected in your clothing brand. Where did that come from, and how do you think about your clothing brand now and how that fits into you know, shaping the culture of climbing? Um, it came from Christian Griffiths, actually. Um, he's a climber from Boulder, famous American climber. I'm sure people have heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> I hope they have. Um, what was his brand? It was like Verve or Verve. something? Verve. Verve. Yeah. He was a good friend of mine, climbed a lot with him, and I went to stay with him in 1990, I think it was, when he was just he just set up Verve and um and I just thought, oh, that's such a cool idea, having like a clothing company. And I thought, oh, I always wanted to do that. So that was kind of where I got the idea to do it with S7 when I started that, which was probably uh, like six or seven years after Christian started Verb. Yeah, and no, I really enjoy it and everything. I mean, I don't sort of think of it as sort of I don't know, what you said about having an influence in climbing culture or anything like that. But, you know, I mm. I like working with designers to design clothes and, you know, producing sort of good, good quality clothing that looks good and is functional and everything. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> and when you think about the word legacy, I don't know if you do think about it, but I'll ask you to think about it. I'm curious if that word carries any importance to you and what you hope that your legacy would be as you look back at your life of climbing from, statement of youth to then really pushing sport climbing standards, boulder problems like Voyager and so many others, and then the moon board and moon climbing and what you've built that's reached so many people and touched so many lives across the world, which is just incredible to think about. What stands out to you and, wh and what do you hope to leave behind as your legacy? Honestly, I really don't sort of think about my sort of legacy at all. You know, I mean, I just certainly with, well, with the climbing, you know, if I can inspire people and motivate people, you know, that's sort of the best thing really. And, you know, it's nice, you know, I feel sort of proud of some of the routes I've done, you know, because they're good routes that people want to do and everything. But, um, yeah, I don't really sort of think about my legacy or anything. I mean, with with sort of with my business, you know, with something like the Moonboard. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm like I said at the beginning. I feel you know incredibly fortunate that it's been so successful and so many people use it. You know, I didn't. You know, I don't do any of this for money. You know, I do it because you know I enjoy it. And you know, the Moonboard. You know, I just thought it was a great idea, and you know, I like training and you know to make a board and everything and. Yeah, I just, you know, I just want to make make it sort of as best as it can be, really. And, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but, yeah, I don't really sort of think about my a legacy or anything like that. What are the climbing achievements that really stand out to you? Um, yeah, well, I mean, Voyager. I'm very proud of Voyager, Hubble, Statement of Youth, yeah, Agincourt. Um, yeah, probably those ones, really. <laughs> Awesome. I'm glad we uh, were able to talk about all of them in this conversation. Ben Moon, what is next for you and moon climbing? Just go surfing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice. Yeah, no, don't really, don't really have any plans at the moment. I'm hoping to go to Spain climbing in February time. 
as long as coronavirus doesn't scuttle mm. plans. Um, and then, yeah, maybe just climbing again, maybe back up at Northern Northern Lights next year if I sort of feel motivated and everything. Got a long, hard, long, cold, hard winter ahead of us. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Is Northern Lights at the top of the list for you as far as uh, dream climbs left to be done? Uh, any other ones that really stand out that you... I've got some other... I do have a few few other projects on the go, which is slightly easier that I've probably got more chance of doing. Mm. But yeah, obviously Northern Lights would be the one I'd like to try and do the most. Amazing. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, uh, we'll all be uh, we'll all be following along with your story and rooting for you. Where can people find you and follow along with you and your climbing? Uh, on our Instagram, Moon Climbing Instagram account, probably it's best bet. Okay. Or MoonClimbing.com through our website. Awesome. Anything else you want to leave people with um, for? Whatever people, you know, the, the moon board, um, anything else that you've learned from this amazing life of climbing that, uh, you want to share with people, any final thoughts How about train hard, climb harder. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like and it. What I mean by that is climb more than you train. Mm. If climbing that's, is what you want to do. That's, a, that's great. Thanks so much, Ben. Yeah, no, it's been uh, fun talking to you. Yeah, real honor for me, real pleasure. got something out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Cheers. Hey, friends, before you go, just a reminder to check out our sponsors. Head over to fizzyvantage.com and use promo code NUGGET15 at checkout for 15% off your next order of the best nutrition supplements on the market for climbers. I am a huge fan of their collagen, especially. And if you need to refill your chalk bag, head over to chalkcartel.com to re-up on my favorite high-performance climbing chalk and use code NUGGET for 20% off your next order. And remember that it even comes in five-gallon buckets. So you can save big and literally chalk up to your elbows if you want to. Thank you, my friends, for tuning into another episode. It's really good to be back. I missed you and I'm excited for a new year and lots of really fun episodes coming soon. So stay tuned. Much love to all of you and we will see you next time. Like we do it.
like we do it. Cause no one can do it like we do it, like we do it, like we do it. Like we do it. 